You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing current therapies for new uses. And my guest is Dr. Stephen Crone, Associate Professor of Molecular Genetics and Cell Biology and investigator in the Ludwig Center for Metastasis Research at the University of Chicago. Dr. Crone and I are discussing what life is like for a physician scientist. Steve, welcome to ReachMD. Hey, Bruce. It's good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, too. So tell our listening audience about your research background. What were your undergrad interests? Where would you do your MD and your PhD? And what's the focus of your current research? Well, I went to the University of Pennsylvania as an undergrad, and I was a biochemistry major and uh, did a lot of research in biophysics, and then I went on to do a little bit of engineering. I did a master's and learned a lot from that. And I really thought I was going to be a physician first, scientist second. But uh, it ended up that once I went to Stanford and did an MD-PhD, that I really flipped it around and became very much a researcher first and a physician second. I went off and did postgraduate research at MIT, learned a lot about genetics there, and came to the University of Chicago as a regular faculty member in a uh, basic science department. Do you have the history of science or medicine in your background? Yeah, I grew up uh, with physician parents, and my big sister and little brother are both physicians. Both of them are clinically active, but they're pretty academic in their, in their own way, I think, and my dad was an academic physician. So how did you decide to focus on research rather than medicine? What was the key factors in all that? Well, it's kind of funny. I uh, was a very serious graduate student, so when you do an MD-PhD, uh, depending on where you do it, you can sort of have almost two different lives, one as a medical student and one as a graduate student. Other places tend to integrate the two together, and I was maybe on the former side. I I uh, left medicine behind uh, and got very serious about my research. And I was pretty lucky and pretty productive as a graduate student. And the question came up whether I should even finish my medical degree. I sought advice from colleagues in my field. And uh, one of my favorite uh, conversations was with a senior guy who really liked me because he had gone to the University of Pennsylvania 30 years before me. And he said, Steve, if you were my son, I'd make you finish your MD. You know, that, w- that really meant a lot to me. But Honestly, uh, once I caught the research bug, it seemed like clinical work was going to actually add something a little bit, but take away a lot of time. Do you spend a lot of time with clinical-focused physicians and researchers right now? Yeah. See, I think the thing that my level of training, which is just finishing my... uh, All I did was, uh, to finish my medical degree, I did the rotation, so I understand a little bit about what happens in hospitals. And I have, of course, the coursework that one takes as a medical student. That's enough to allow me to have very useful conversations with my uh, colleagues who are clinically active. And so I've had really wonderful interactions with colleagues who are radiation oncologists, oncology hematologists. Recently, I've interacted a fair amount with GI internal medicine people. And my wife happens to be a cardiologist, so I get to talk to those people a fair amount. And do you think that this background makes you a more effective researcher even when you're not talking to them? Well, you know, effective researcher to me means can I get the opportunity to do the research I find interesting? And so it has two effects. One is it changes my interest because I understand what makes people sick at least enough that I can begin to think about mechanism better. And then the other thing is, of course, that it helps me explain to other people 
what the possible implications of the questions that I study might be. And so it makes me a much better researcher from the point of view of keeping me focused and helping me explain things. Take us through a typical week for you. You must have a multitude of responsibilities there. Well, you know, I think that what makes my job great is that I'm almost like sort of, I think, many of your listeners, college professors. That is that I get to sit in my office, and of course we don't uh, smoke cigars or whatever people used to do in the good old days, but honestly I have a lot of time because I get to structure it myself. But that doesn't mean that I squander it. It just means that I can make choices on a daily basis about what I do. The number of meetings that I have to go to is within reason. It's about the same as I think many of my physician, active physician colleagues have. What I have extra is more time to spend in my laboratory talking to my trainees, talking to the people who work with me on my research, and then to talk occasionally to my colleagues about what's going on in the bigger world, usually politics, not science. So if you don't get funded from patient care, how do you get paid? Yeah, that's a good question. It's different at every university, but ours works somewhat like a medical school in that my uh, position is not based on my teaching. In fact, I uh, don't teach medical students. I teach undergraduates and occasionally teach graduate students. And undergraduates do pay tuition, but it's very funny, none of the tuition money at my university can, comes to pay my salary. So it's really just volunteer time. So what raises my salary is my research. In fact, every time I write a research grant, I say what percent time of my day I intend to spend on that project, and then I ask the funding, uh, which might be a uh, federal group like NIH, to pay that percent of my salary. And that's basically how it works. And how much research funding does it take to run the entire laboratory, and how do you get it? Well, I am very serious about obtaining funding because I have lots of projects and lots of interests. And so uh, in or- the kind of amounts of money it takes are, uh, I think, pretty impressive when you start thinking about them. For example, uh, this year I was just talking with my administrators about what we could spend because you set a budget for yourself. And with all the grants put together, I think I can spend just in my one laboratory about one and a quarter million dollars. Now, that may sound like a lot. You know, that's a good-sized small business, but it does have to support a lot of people. Now, how do you get money like that? Well, you don't get it all in one chunk. You have to divide it up into projects that are ongoing in your laboratory, write very, very well-thought-out proposals that justify the funding for the particular work that you propose, and then you have to continually show good results or else the funding stops. So how many people are there, and what do they all do? Well, so it's really kind of fun because it's very dynamic, uh, right now, my laboratory usually has about 15 people in it, and uh, about a third of them are what we call technicians, who are people who are not really being trained, but maybe en route to another profession or en route to graduate school or medical school. But they are more or less very intellectual worker bees, but worker bees nonetheless. Then there are graduate students, postdocs, undergraduates, etc., coming, going, arriving. So 15, 20 people sometimes are in my laboratory and I'm hoping to expand it a bit. And how long do they typically stay? Uh, are they there for a month, a year? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Actually, you re- it usually takes people about a year before they can learn enough to be productive unless they've been doing very, very similar research before. And often for me, it's most interesting to bring in people who don't have a background in exactly the things that I hope they're going to do. So most people stay in the lab 
one, two, four, five, six years. And how do you manage all of this? Are you in there every day looking over their shoulder, checking their laboratory journals, and what do you do? Well, so that's one of the things about uh, having a lot of unstructured time, which is it means that I can essentially walk into the laboratory, which is around the corner from my office. I get bored doing email all day, so I get to talk to my, to my guys. And I guess that's unfair, actually. Three-quarters of the people who work for me are women. Um, but we, t- we talk on an individual basis, unplanned, impromptu. Sometimes they want to show me an um, experimental result for my interpretation or approval. And it's a, sort of a, an unstructured type of process that is called mentoring. And, I mean, there's a code word for hanging out. And I think that that's actually one of the good ways to do science. The idea of having to achieve everything with planned meetings and presentations, which we still do, is uh, really, I think, not the way that science really gets done. So out of that million and a quarter dollars that you've got this year, how much is going to overhead, how much to salary, and how much is spent on reagents, equipment, and other technology? Wow, that's exactly the right kind of question to ask. So... Actually, what's going to happen is, let's say I'm able to spend a million of the million and a quarter. What I was telling you about was direct costs, which are the costs that I'm actually allowed to spend on salaries for myself, my lab, that is the people who work in here, um, for supplies, uh, services, etc. There's a whole other part of this, which is called overhead, which is that when the federal government gives me $100,000, they give my university... $50,000 about to host me. And so out of the million plus that I told you about, the university is getting on the order of, I believe, 400,000 or so more or more uh, to help their operations in support of my laboratory. Um, I think that's a pretty good deal for the university. So let's talk about the NIH a little bit. Uh, They fund more medical research than anybody except the pharmaceutical companies. What do you think about the way they're spending their money now, and what would you do if you were running the NIH? Wow, you know, that's something that we all dream of if we were only in control. Yeah, the NIH has a very big budget. It's about $30 billion. It would be a little bigger if it weren't for other costs and uh, the tax structure we have right now. But let's say with $30 billion, you could do a lot, I think. Now, we don't get to spend all $30 billion on medical research. There's a lot of infrastructure, and, in fact, there's a whole campus in Bethesda, where uh, money gets spent not only on research, but also on uh, the operations of NIH. But even if it was only $20 billion of research, and it's certainly more than that, that's a lot. And so what could you do to make it more effective? I think you spread it out. I think it's actually a mistake to allow one person like me to have as much NIH funding as I have. It's completely based on competition, and I happen to be very serious about competing for that funding. Instead, we could use models where we look at uh, faculty, or I'm sorry, researchers, and decide what kind of funding levels would make them most effective. And probably for me, you'd want to cut me down a bit. What other governmental funding agencies are there, and are they sort of oxymoronic in the stuff they're doing? There are plenty of other places to get funding from the federal government. In fact, uh, for a person like me, I'm often paying attention to where those are. And the Department of Energy, uh, the Department of Defense, uh, the Homeland Security, and so on, all fund medical research. Each, even the Navy, of course, uh, has very specific medical research interests. All of these provide immense amounts of funding that goes to not just researchers in industry, but also at universities. And, for example, my laboratory is partially funded by medical research funds that come through the Department of Defense, but are actually to replace funds 
at the uh, NIH. And does the Army only do research that benefits soldiers? No, actually the Army has been tasked with funding particular diseases, breast cancer, prostate cancer, neurofibromatosis, and a couple of others that are perceived by Congress to be underfunded by NIH. And so it's sort of a a Band-Aid on the NIH system. It's a very unusual uh, mechanism because it's very, very specific. What does a physician scientist bring to the clinical care and research tables? I want to thank my guest, Dr. Stephen Crone, Associate Professor of Molecular Genetics and Cell Biology and Investigator in the Ludwig Center for Metastasis Research at the University of Chicago for talking to us about his life as an MD-PhD. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that repurposes existing treatments for new uses. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.